to week one of Her, The Power, Impact, and Influence of Women in Scripture. Throughout this series, we'll be sharing stories and experiences of amazing women in our church. Each story is different, but connected in our experience as women using our gifts to build the body of Christ. Here's Abby Arie. So I grew up in the Presbyterian Church where women are ordained as pastors and serve on elder boards and are able to um, serve in a lot of different capacities. Even with that though, um, I had very minimal experiences with women preaching or performing sacraments. Um, generally women spent time serving with children, um, with the youth, or in hospitality ministries. I distinctly remember in fifth or sixth grade in Sunday school, we were studying the spiritual gifts. And we did this quiz. And my two highest giftings were leadership and encouragement. For some reason, I felt like I needed to kind of lean into the encouragement part and maybe shy away from the leadership part. And this kind of was a pattern throughout my life. I would enter a new setting and kind of stay shied away and observant. And then eventually I'd land myself in a leadership role. Over and over again, this has been a pattern in my life. And when I think about that, I think, I think it's because I didn't feel like I could bring all of who I am into every space that I've been in. It's almost like I need to assess the waters a little bit and then decide if I can actually be me. Um, and actually share my thoughts and my gifts with others. And generally, Eric and I have found ourselves in churches that are um, theologically in a place where they think women are leaders. But we did have um, an experience where that wasn't the case. Um, we found ourselves serving in a church that very much believed that women had strengths but that they were very different than men's. Um, and over and over again, I kept being bypassed for these roles that I knew that I could help, um, ways that I could serve that I would be able to be beneficial to the church and, um, and its organization. And it came to a point where I, Eric and I just couldn't get on board with raising our kids in an environment where women are not able to lead and be fully who they are. I don't want to raise little girls who think they have to fit into a certain box. And I don't want to raise little boys who turn into men that believe women fit into a box. Um, and so it became more and more evident that that was probably not the best fit for our family that continued to grow rapidly. Um, and it, it was a difficult experience because these were friends. These were people who we trusted. We um, loved where we were and what we were doing. But that just became a non-negotiable for us, that our kids needed to be able to be who they are and I needed to be able to be who I am too. So I'm not a typical pastor's wife. I don't primarily cook, I don't primarily care for our children, I'm not meek, I'm not mild, and I'm not dainty. Um, I'm vocal, I am a communicator, I say what I think and what I believe, 
and I'm grateful that I can be in a place where my gifts can be used in a way that um, gives them justice and that I can be fully who I am. That I can bring all that I have to offer to the table and that I don't have to feel like I need to hold pieces of me back. I'd like to begin by setting the record straight on something that I grew up believing. And maybe you heard this too, but I grew up believing that if you swallow gum, it stays inside of you for how long? Seven years, right? I distinctly remember accidentally swallowing gum and being traumatized by this. As a child, I simply was terrified and disgusted by the amount of gum that was inside of my stomach. Just packs of hubba bubba, bazooka bubble gum, and then my favorite gum growing up, Big League Chew. Just mounting a mountain inside of my stomach. At Yale University, they did a study recently, and good news, the absolute maximum that gum will stay in your body is seven days, not seven years. What I grew up believing was wrong, okay? I heard it somewhere, perhaps from someone with authority, and I believed it for many years, even passing it on to my children. But it wasn't true. This sermon series is a confession and a profession. Uh, the series is a confession, a confession that for many years of my life and my ministry career, I believe that God called men and women to different callings according to their gender. And this series is also a profession, a profession of the reality that God doesn't call men and women according to their gender. He calls them according to their gifting. And so every Sunday in May, we'll be exploring this theme throughout the scriptures, and I can't wait. Now there's one caveat that I think should be addressed. I'm a man. And I understand that a man teaching that women should be teachers is less than ideal. I won't be doing all of the teaching throughout this sermon series, and we'll have lots of stories and creative elements to drive the point home. And if you don't really like what I'm saying, you can always send your hate mail to Brittany at prodigalchurchfresno.com. Next week is Mother's Day, and we've got some fun creative elements planned. Uh, so we've got a gifts for moms. Every woman that walks in the door is going to get a gift. So invite your mom, invite your friend's mom, invite your neighbor's mom. We're going to have an absolute blast. Now, let's dive in. Let's begin with some of the double standards that we find in our world, in our society, and in our culture about women. Women make up less than 24% of world leaders and only 5% of its mayors. On average, women are paid 24% less than men for comparable work across all regions and sectors. Women are less likely to hold managerial or supervisory positions, and when they do, their positions carry less authority. Now, I am 42 years old. I have lived in the United States all of my life. I'm educated, and I feel like I'm a pretty well-informed citizen. In my research this week, I learned about something that I have never even heard of before. It's called the pink tax. Are you familiar with it? The pink tax refers to how products for women are often more expensive 
than the men's equivalent. Like a bag of men's razors is $5.49, and a similar bag of women's razors is $6.39. This is not an actual government tax, but rather a price markup by companies. Here's a few examples. And as you can see, this is an unjust price discrepancy. We've already discovered that women already make less income. Why should they then also pay more for equivalent products and services? So there are double standards in the world. There are double standards in the workplace and also in the marketplace. Are there double standards in the home as well? Statistics show that even when both partners have full-time jobs, women do twice as much of the housework and childcare as the men. A woman who takes care of her kids is simply doing what's expected of her, but a man who takes care of the kids is an exceptional, involved father. One female celebrity mom wrote this, people often ask me if I feel lucky that your husband is such an involved dad, and the answer is no. I expect him to be a good father. That's why I had kids with him. Nobody would ever say to a man, wow, you are so lucky your wife feeds and bathes your children. For women, it's expected to love and to protect and to show up for soccer practice. For men, an hour or two alone with the kids on a weekend somehow warrants a trophy or at least a world's greatest dad mug. This double standard is antiquated. This double standard is antiquated and insulting. I too have seen that sentiment. Another female celebrity said this in an interview, the double standards for men and women are astounding. A man does something and it's strategic. A woman does the same thing and it's calculated. A man is allowed to react. A woman can only overreact. And the most heart-wrenching statistics that I have come across this past week, that worldwide, one in three women and girls will experience violence or abuse in their lifetime. Acts of violence to women produce more death, disability, and mutilation than cancer, malaria, and traffic accidents combined. In 2017, in the wake of the Harvey Weinstein abuse stories, actress Alyssa Milano encouraged women who had experienced sexual assault to use the hashtag MeToo. And within minutes, we were flooded with millions of stories and every one of them with a name and a face behind them. And you'd think that the church would be the greatest champion for women, but often you'd be wrong. A study by Elaine Storkey that was that 95% of Christian women who go to Christian churches say they have never heard a sermon declaring that abuse is wrong. Abuse and assault by those in power on any victim, and in particular women, is wrong, it's evil, it's not God's will, and if you are in a situation like that, you should get out, and the church ought to be the first and loudest to say so. This series might make us uncomfortable. The series might challenge some assumptions. And rather than trying to alleviate the tension within, I want to encourage us to lean into it. I think God wants to move us and stretch us with a bigger mind and a bigger heart. So 
here is the heart of this sermon series. And I want to be clear about this, so we're going to reiterate it again and again throughout. Jesus and the Bible lead to the elevation of women as full equals with men and their role in the home, in the church, and in society should be defined not by gender, but by gifting. This is what we'll be articulating throughout the series. It's important to reaffirm this conviction because the Bible has been used to justify the subjugation of women for thousands of years. Men throughout the centuries have quoted it to silence women, to dominate women, and even to enslave women. And there are some terrible passages of scripture regarding the treatment of women. Here's one, Deuteronomy chapter 21, verse 10. When you go to war against your enemies and the Lord your God delivers them into your hands and you take captives, if you notice among the captives a beautiful woman and are attracted to her, you may take her as your wife. Bring her into your home and have her shave her head, trim her nails, and put aside the clothes she was wearing when captured. After she has lived in your house and mourned her father and mother for a full month, then you may go to her and be her husband, and she shall be your wife. If you are not pleased with her, let her go wherever she wishes. You must not sell her or treat her as a slave since you have dishonored her. Right here, okay, in black and white, the Bible is out of touch. The Bible is ancient. The Bible is barbaric. Let's just throw the whole thing out. Not so fast. Yes, the law given to the Israelites in Deuteronomy is barbaric, sexist, and oppressive. But when it was written, roughly 1500 BC, it was a massive leap forward in the treatment of women. When you conquer your enemy and you find an attractive woman, you may take her as your wife. But first, shave her head, cut her nails, let her mourn for 30 days, and then if it's not working out, let her go free. Now, this is unheard of in the ancient world. Triumphant males must not exploit or take advantage of female captives. So Moses instructs the Israelites how to respect the rights and dignity of the wives that they have captured. The captive bride must be allowed to express her pain at being torn from her people and forced to join an alien community. While having her shave her head, trim her nails, remove her clothing, might appear to be insulting. These actions actually symbolize her change of status. When her hair and nails grow and she puts on new clothes, she emerges as a new person with a new identity and a new status inside a new community. And then, if it doesn't work, which, let's be honest, the odds are against it, right? Uh, this is not a typical how I met your mother story. Well, you know, our tribe murdered her tribe and I thought, you know what, your mom was cute, so I took her as my wife. No, after the 30 days, you couldn't enslave her, you couldn't sell her, you would let her go free. Nowhere else in ancient literature was this even possible. 
In a kill or be killed world, where women were seen as property, here, this ancient Hebrew law moves the needle forward. God meets the people where they are. This is not ideal. This is not the last step, but it is a step. And rather than seeing it as a law forever, we see it as an accommodation of the times. Throughout the Hebrew scriptures, we find amazing stories of women, women who were heroes in the narratives. Not long after Moses wrote these exact laws in Deuteronomy about taking conquered wives, we have the story of Rahab, a prostitute who aligned herself with the Hebrews and saved lives. And she is mentioned in the genealogy of Jesus. And then we have the story of Deborah, who was the spiritual and civic leader of Israel during a difficult time in the Judges. We have the story of Ruth and Naomi, who both in many ways demonstrate faith in God worth emulating. The story shows the difficult world in which women lived in 1100 BC. Then, 600 years later, we have the story of Esther. Okay, more on that next Sunday. There are lots of these subversive stories throughout the Hebrew scriptures, pointing towards God's ideal, but living in the midst of their ancient patriarchal culture. What we find in the Bible is not always concrete laws for all time, but an unfolding of God's will and God's way for his people and for the world. The Bible is very often descriptive, not prescriptive. That is, it describes the way things were rather than how they ought to be. Now, and if, if reading and understanding how the Bible is interpreted, it's, if it's interesting to you and you want to dig deeper, I would encourage you to listen to our six-week series, Binge Reading the Bible, from 2021. That series will give you so much more to chew on. It's available on our app, YouTube, uh, iTunes podcast, and on our website. Well, how does Jesus treat women? This should be our filter for moving forward. And to understand Jesus, it's important to understand the culture of the first century. There are things that we lose being 2,000 years removed from the culture of Jesus' time. Things that were understood back then that may not make much sense now. And even in our culture, we have sayings and phrases that would be difficult for someone to understand if they weren't living here. Uh, for example, a, a couple of famous phrases that we have in our country. Don't look a gift horse in the mouth. Well, what would that mean to a foreigner? What it means for us is don't be critical of a gift. Another one, grasping at straws. Try to explain that to uh, uh, someone from a different country uh, drinking from a straw at lunch. And that, of course, means to try something with little hopes for success. And then finally, when in Rome. When in Rome means when surrounded by a culture, do as they would do. We just take these sayings for granted because we swim in them, right? We've heard them our entire lives. And as we are framing the culture during the time of Jesus, there was this implicit understanding of women, and that is, if you're a good Jewish man, do not speak to a woman in public. There's a first century rabbinic commentary that said this, a Jewish male was forbidden to talk to a woman on the street or in public, even if she was his wife, daughter, 
or sister. Every single encounter that Jesus publicly has with women, and there are many, is a scandalous violation of his culture. And we lose this in translation being 2,000 years removed. Every encounter with a woman, Jesus is making an enormous statement that modern readers, we just kind of gloss right over. In the surrounding Greco-Roman culture of the time, women were subservient to men and to their husbands. Very few were educated and most were seen as property. Almost all were barred from public speaking. This is the scene in the world in which Jesus, the Son of God, arrives. Look at Luke chapter 8. After this, Jesus traveled about from one town and village to another, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God. The twelve were with him, and also some women who had been cured of evil spirits and diseases, Mary, called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had come out. Joanna, the wife of Chusa, the manager of Herod's household, Susanna, and many others. These women were helping support them out of their own means. These were women disciples of Jesus, which was unbelievably radical in this time period. They also bankrolled the ministry of Jesus. Wealthy women following Jesus and taking care of the financial burden of being uh, an itinerant preacher that travels from town to town. There were probably others that helped bankroll Jesus, but no others are listed. Only women are listed by name. All four Gospels say that there were many women present at the crucifixion of Jesus. Eight of them are mentioned by name, including Joanna and Mary Magdalene. These women were mentioned as being present at the cross, and that is not true for most of his disciples. The 12, the first people Jesus chose to appear to after the resurrection were women. Not only that, but he instructed them to tell the other disciples that he was alive. See Matthew 28 and John 20. In a culture where a woman's testimony was worthless because she was worthless, Jesus elevated the value of women beyond anything the world had ever known or seen. Once again, Jesus and the Bible lead us to the elevation of women as full equals with men and their role in the home, in the church, and in society should not be defined by gender but by gifting. This is Theodora. She was empress of the Byzantine Empire. She led a vast world empire, cared for refugees, installed policies that protected and gave rights to divorced women, and created laws prohibiting the trafficking of young girls. She's one of the first to do so. This is Jehan d'Arts, better known as Joan of Arc. Born a pious peasant in medieval France, she believed that God had chosen her to lead France to victory in its long-running war with England. And at the age of 19, with zero military training, she led the French army to the besieged city of Orleans. 
where they achieved a stunning victory. Joan was eventually captured by enemy forces, tried for witchcraft, and burned at the stake at the age of 19. Joan of Arc was considered by many to be one of history's greatest martyrs, the patron saint of France. This is a picture of Nellie Bly. She was widely known for her world record-breaking trip around the world in 72 days. Uh, she also changed the world of investigative journalism. In her time, she pretended to be insane so that she could get locked in a mental institution. There, she wrote an undercover report about the treatment of the mentally ill. And she wrote this amazing expose and changed medical policies. This is a picture of Marie Van Britten Brown. She was born and raised in a rough neighborhood in Queens, New York. Marie was African-American who worked as a nurse. She was tired of intruders entering her home and tired of police negligence. So in 1966, to protect her friends and her family, she invented a movable camera that could immediately send images to a TV screen monitor of whoever was at the front door. Brown filed a patent for her invention later that year under the name Home Security System Utilizing Television Surveillance. She was a nurse trained in the world of medicine and she invented what we now know as security cameras. Throughout the history of humanity, we have incredible women doing world-changing things. They're inventive, they're creative, they're inspiring, they're incredible people, they're incredible leaders, they're intelligent, they're logical, they're strong. So why in the home and why in the church do we think that women need to follow a man's lead just because they're a man? God, I pray that we treat women, that we empower women, that we encourage women, that we follow women, and that we live our lives to show the full equality of women in every way. We pray that we would be a church that does this well. In Jesus' name, amen. We want to thank you so much for joining us online at Prodigal Church Fresno for week one of Her. Next week is Mother's Day, and we're going to dive in uh, to week two. We can't wait. We pray God's blessing of hope, peace, and love upon you. We pray for God's safety upon all the vulnerable women in our world. Grace and peace.